Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Vijay Peria Coyle's Healthcare Leadership Podcast. Through stories from international healthcare leaders, this podcast will reveal the secrets to becoming a transformational healthcare leader. Our guest today is Dr. Patricia Jones. Dr. Jones is the director of the Office of Special Populations at the National Institute on Aging. Welcome, Dr. Patricia Jones. Thank you so much for being here and being willing to share about your life. Can you get us started by telling us about your early life, please? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'll go back a, a ways. Uh, my early career probably started um, prior to uh, actual professional work. And I um, always knew I was very interested and curious about science and um, through the wonderful insight and guidance of um, instructors and high school teachers, um, I was encouraged early on to pursue my dreams and my interests. Uh, I chose to uh, matriculate into the University of California at Berkeley, um, pursuing um, with an intention to pursue a career in biochemistry. And, you know, I came from a very, um, modest family environment uh, with a very modest um, school environment, small environment. I didn't know a lot about different professions uh, and different uh, pathways and uh, various careers, but I knew I was very interested in science and um, Berkeley seemed to offer what I was looking for. Sounds like you went to Berkeley and it's one of the best, you know, amazing universities in the entire world. So from that point, how did you get into public health? Was there like an early mentor, someone who actually impacted your career and influenced you to get into public health? I made my uh, transition from high school into the university environment. And it wasn't until um, probably my second year, I was taking courses in other areas, other fields, and had the opportunity, uh, or maybe it was the, the universe bringing someone into my space, uh, but this person was very influential in impacting my career choice even today. And this person was a graduate student assistant or a GSA. Um, she was working on her doctorate in public health and she was assigned to teach uh, a women's studies course, which was the class I was taking. And I really enjoyed all the health related topics and questions and um, opportunities to be provocative that she was presenting to the class. And she just happened to ask me one day, have you ever thought about a career in public health? I knew nothing about it. And it was from there, uh, she encouraged me to take uh, undergraduate courses. At that time, they didn't have a full degree program available, but I did take whatever classes were available and it was the best decision I could ever make. Um, and 27 plus years later, I, I'm so grateful for that happenstance conversation that opened up uh, a new pathway. How did you get into actually working with patients and families? Uh, was there a time when you did any volunteering or any community-based participatory uh, immersive experiences during your early career? I began volunteering at the University Health Center um, throughout East Oakland um, and different neighboring cities and communities uh, working with uh, individuals who were uh, unhoused or experiencing difficult times. And it really helped put in practice public health. Where did you do your master's? 
Uh, immediately after I graduated, I, I matriculated into the master's program at UCLA School of Public Health and um, finished that program and took a position with the County Department of Public Health, Los Angeles County. And I loved it. It was everything that we were learning in practice, in motion. But I knew that, you know, I was still growing and evolving in terms of what area or particular uh, field of public health I would settle on. Eventually, I moved into infectious diseases. Um, at that time, I was in environmental health. I moved over to infectious diseases and took a position because I really was starting to understand me as a person and a professional that I really um, was inspired by communication and interactions with the participants, the recipients of the, um, the public health services being made available. So I moved over to a nonprofit organization that is still in existence today. They're almost 70 years old. And at that time I was working in the Skid Row area of downtown Los Angeles, uh, serving individuals who were unhoused and uh, providing different services. And that really helped me appreciate today what I understand as community-engaged research, community engagement as a practice. After UCLA, I think you went uh, to Loma Linda, right? And you had mentioned that you were doing some caregiving for family as well. So tell us a little bit about that. I uh, applied and moved into the doctoral program at Loma Linda University uh, in San Bernardino. But I, I, again, coming from a very humble background, I was working and I couldn't afford to not work and be a full-time student. I was also the caregiver of my, my mother who was in uh, poor health and uh, really the, the uh, head of the household at that time. So work was important. After Loma Linda, then what happened? Where did you go next? Loma Linda, I graduated. I was working at UCLA while holding uh, the program at Loma Linda and an invitation <laughs> came uh, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and I, uh, I took a federal job and became a federal employee and relocated from California to headquarters in Atlanta. CDC career was fantastic. And um, it was an absolute privilege to um, work side by side with really dedicated, passionate scientists from so many backgrounds, physician scientists, pharmacists, behavioral scientists, um, experienced adult learning uh, experts and trainers. I was in specifically the division of HIV AIDS. Um, and this was in an era, the early 2000s, uh, where we had some evidence tested interventions, but there was still a, a need, an urgent need uh, for more diverse uh, interventions that truly reflected the segments of our societies that were heavily, heavily impacted by this epidemic. Um, and I had the privilege of working with the Behavioral Intervention Research Branch, and uh, we were on a team and that was our charge. Um, the one half of our team conducted systematic reviews. The half of the team that I sat on and eventually became the first deputy to lead was the team that was charged with translating efficacious interventions, many of which were funded by NIH or other parts of uh, government, identified through the systematic review process to be efficacious but needed to be uh, scaled up in a way that would allow for health departments and organizations to use in their local community. And that behind the veil takes quite a bit of work and additional evaluation and further testing to ensure that what you're 
modifying is relevant and effective as described in the ma manuscripts that were used. How long were you at the CDC? And then how did you get to NIH? I was there roughly nine years or so. And uh, eventually uh, transitioned from CDC to the National Institutes of Health, specifically in NIAID, again, still seeing the importance of um, addressing infectious diseases, HIV uh, behavioral interventions. And NIAID provided a wonderful opportunity to um, address clinical trials on a global scale. And that was a nice transition from CDC where I had just finished an overseas um, temporary assignment supporting our field office in Nairobi, Kenya, and prior to that supporting our field office in Pretoria, South Africa. And so those two uh, short-term opportunities really help solidify in my uh, view how uh, to contribute in a meaningful way to the oversight and management of clinical trials uh, at NIAID. And I've served as a program officer in the Office of Clinical Site Oversight and had wonderful grantees who were at the San Francisco Department of Public Health or Botswana um, to Columbia School of Medicine or other parts of the country here locally. And it was just a fabulous uh, tapestry of dedicated researchers um, developing new vaccines, therapeutics, behavioral interventions, the full spectrum of every tool you would imagine you would need to address a serious infectious disease like HIV. And I counted a joy uh, to, to be able to uh, manage and coordinate some of the activities that they were funded to do. It totally sounds like you were following your heart. So all the way from Berkeley to Los Angeles, to Atlanta, to Bethesda. I'm sure as you continued along this path, you experienced some failures along the way. Can you give us a couple of uh, you know, stories where things did not work out quite as well as you wanted to and how you managed that and the lessons that you learned? I don't think of failures, and that's a word I struggle with identifying with, but I will say that along the way, um, eventually I trans transitioned from NIAID to uh, the National Centers for Advancing Translational Sciences, or NCATS, and it was a, another really wonderful, rich opportunity to explore some uh, activities and tasks that were still taking root uh, and taking hold in the institute or center rather. And um, I had the opportunity to collaborate with my colleagues in leading a national uh, program evaluation strategic management effort called the Common Metrics Initiative. And this was under the Clinical and Translational Science Award or CTSA program. And that opportunity um, opened up um, rich conversations on uh, measurement, um, identifying metrics uh, that are relevant and useful in the clinical and translational research space. Um, but to your question around failure, I don't see it as a failure that uh, I had hoped we would move a little further along, um, but I appreciate the thoughtful, methodical, careful, conversations and decisions that were had and, and being made along the way, it may not have happened as quickly as I had wanted it or thought it should or could happen, 
But in hindsight, I appreciate that um, those that time is needed to really garner um, stakeholder perspectives that are important. Important in making um, changes to your plans, important to um, making the case and being an exemplar for other parts of uh, the agency. And so even though I've moved on from NCATS to now the National Institute on Aging, I leverage that uh, experience and lessons learned in patience, essentially. So I don't see it as a failure, as a lesson in patience. Um, as we have our own conversations around measurement and the importance of how metrics and uh, managing clinical trials uh, impacts healthy, uh, excuse me, impacts aging research. So I, I see it as a, a lesson learned, not a failure. What gives you inner strength when things don't go quite the way you want to? All of us have been there, me certainly. You have all these plans and then nothing works, everything fails and you feel pretty terrible. And then you have to get up and pick yourself up and keep moving forward. And for that, you need some inner strength. What gives you strength to do that? So I will tell you, I learned over the years to be patient. My strength um, comes from a quote that I really think uh, reflects my inner being to the core. And it's a quote from um, Marion Wright Edelman, uh, child advocacy attorney. Um, and her quote is that education is for improving the lives of others and for leaving your community and world better than you found it. And that is absolutely a mirror of everything um, I do, every degree I pursued, every career I've opted to take, every job. It's all about how do I position myself to be the most nimble, useful instrument to benefit my community and the world. Sounds like you have a core inner strength that you've been able to draw upon again and again. And I suspect that part of it comes from uh, your early life and the, you, you, we talked a little bit about your humble beginnings. Would you agree? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I come from humble beginnings. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. Um, the community changed quite a bit over the decades. And um, a month before I graduated from UC Berkeley, the Los Angeles riots happened. And I came back home to begin taking care of my mother, as I mentioned, who was not in good health, but also to begin my program at UCLA. And I did not recognize my community. And I see today, as I you know, have um, connections and still very um, entrenched with family members and close friends uh, in the Los Angeles area, I see um, opportunities of change and I see where things are, have yet to really kind of uh, shape up and, and recover all these years later. And some of the same questions and issues are still being grappled with today around economic equity and social justice um, today. So I, you know, I think about um, my career, my education, the position I hold, and to the extent that I'm able to um, leverage my 
my, my expertise, however best I can to make the world and my community better is really my motivation and the thing that keeps me inspired and focused when things don't go quite the way I want them to or as quickly as I had hoped, that keeps me grounded. Patricia, as I listen to your story, I see a pattern here. You went from Los Angeles, one of the most liberal places in the world, to Berkeley, which is perhaps the most liberal university in the entire world. And then from there back to Los Angeles, to Atlanta, to Bethesda. So it's almost like you're jumping from one liberal bubble to another. And I'm sure that was no accident. It was all totally strategic and planned out. But what does one do if, if you are a young person and you live in the part of the country where you have these aspirations to work with diverse communities, but the ground that you live in is not so fertile. How does one uh, navigate a circumstance like that? What advice can you give us about that? You know, I would say um, being born and raised in Los Angeles, there's certainly um, a level of exposure to diverse people that you may have um, that others don't necessarily have as much of, but there are quite a number of um, social tensions and settings that people may assume are liberal or receiving or receptive or open that um, aren't always as open as people would hope. And I can recall, you know, opportunities of being in circles, groups, classes, environments, uh, dormitories, and, you know, remarks are made, comments are stated, uh, assumptions are, are made about people, groups of people. And you have to kind of think to yourself, again, what is your purpose? And you're trying to figure out what is your purpose. But I'm, I'm so very grateful for uh, the values that my parents instilled in, in us early that uh, education was essential it was an absolute necessary um, pathway onto a better life and more opportunity and you can't squander it. And so with that in mind, I was very thoughtful to jealously guard my opportunities. And um, when you're trying to find a circle to fit in, when you're trying to find groups to, that reflect your values, you have to be thoughtful about, again, what is your purpose and what do you hope to accomplish and where will those circles that you're building, those networks that you're building, uh, position you to be the best instrument of change um, that you can be. It's a growth, it's a learning process, it takes time. Um, when I left California, that was a huge eye-opening experience. Uh, small things that you take for granted uh, because they're so readily available in a very large, diverse county or, or state are not necessarily <laughs> widely available everywhere else. Um, and, and you definitely uh, have an opportunity to be introspective and reflect on what's important to you as a person. The past year has been pretty traumatic for all of us. Having said that, we have to pick ourselves up and move forward. What do you think are the most thorny problems that we have to solve over the next decade as a nation? I think um, we are well on our way to having more transparent, honest conversations around what is truly 
similar and dissimilar among groups of people. And to the extent that we are able to show up and be honest about what we need to feel supported, welcomed, loved, and encouraged, I think we will see that there is more in common than not. And we can accomplish meeting those commonalities without having to hold people back. They don't have to be, uh, someone's success does not have to be the polar opposite solution to someone else's failure or demise. We have enough to give and support people wholly. And to the extent that we can accept that, perhaps we can have more honest conversations on the really important big picture topics like, like equity, social justice. And it's not just about health. Health is an outward expression of the bigger issue. The bigger issue is to the extent people feel whole, they feel engaged, they feel heard. And if people can feel heard and supported economically, educationally, socially, politically, our systems will be a reflection of that. Our school systems, our health systems, our church systems will be a reflection of the, the, the whole perspective. Um, so I think if we can focus on that now, the next 10 years, we have an opportunity to really uh, shape and mold um, partnerships that benefit everyone and not to the demise of some. Patricia, if you had to give candid advice to uh, young people who are starting out on their journey, what are some specific things that you might suggest that would benefit them? Two points. Let's be honest about dealing with fear. What are we really most afraid of? And of course, people are afraid of being left behind, whatever that looks like, left behind in our job markets, left behind socially. And if we can figure out how to be uh, supportive of everyone and not leave people behind, people will, will be willing to contribute, I would argue, their highest and best thinking toward whatever the solution is on any topic. It's, it's, it's a uniform a strategy that I wholeheartedly believe would benefit everyone. The second point I would contribute to a younger person just starting on their career, 27 years later, in hindsight, I am so grateful, absolutely grateful, that I did not go directly in from undergraduate to graduate into an, you know, a, a career without having that practice-oriented, applied job environment exposure. If you have the opportunity to volunteer, to take, if you have the financial luxury to take a job that lets you apply your skill before you settle in an academic uh, track, I would highly encourage you to do that because I, I argue you would see research questions and the context, the social determinants that affect our health in a much broader context, having worked in that applied setting. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for being so frank and so thoughtful and self-reflective. Your journey, your story is really generating optimism in me.
And I think anyone listening to this is going to uh, feel a sense of hope and joy in terms of structuring their own career. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about me. Thank you for joining us today. For more leadership podcasts, visit us at respect.stanford.edu.